Well, good morning. So good to see all of you again today. I don't know if you've ever had this happen before where you were kind of a normal old day and all of a sudden the phone rang or someone entered into your world, shared with you some difficult news that completely changed the trajectory of your life for the next many weeks, months, possibly even years. That's exactly what happens in the story we're going to be in for the next several weeks as a church together studying the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an incredible journey with a man where God raised up a man to rebuild a city, a city that was broken down without walls. If you were with us last week, I did a little bit of an intro for this book so we could kind of get a context for why she, what can we learn from this book and where is it in the Bible that we can kind of get a grasp on what's happening. So real briefly, let me share with you to get you up to speed if you weren't with us last week. Because this book, I tell you, if you'll stick with it, it'll change your life. Because the fact is, every single one of us in this room at some point are going to get distressful news or be in the presence of folks who have a broken down life. And it may be us. And maybe we can go back and give testimony of how God rebuilt some things in our lives after we have been maybe broken down. And this book is an incredible one for uh, learning how to put in the right walls and gates and the boundaries of life. It's super practical. We're going to deal with a lot of things that happen in uh, emotions in us, dealing with practical things in our thinking, our minds, what it looks like to put in safeguards in terms of the controlled points of access into our lives. Because that's what happens when you put the walls back around a city and the gates in the right place. In fact, the book of Isaiah refers to the walls of salvation. And when it comes to talking about even this city, describes the walls as salvation and the gates like praise. And so what it does is it, it, it establishes that solid rock we just sang about, that you can stand upon that solid rock firmly and know who Christ is and be confident that even when things are going bad or seemingly very distressful in your life, that you can know for sure you can stand on that solid rock and your salvation's secure. And at the same time have this controlled points of access when it comes to even our praise and the gates that we have in our life so that the enemy can't just pilfer and just run roughshod over our lives. Proverbs 25, 28 is kind of the overarching application to this entire book of Nehemiah. And it says this, that he that has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Now catch what I just said. He that has no rule over his own spirit means you're just emotionally out of bounds and whatever the enemy wants to do to kind of penetrate into the walls of your life and run over you, you, you have no safeguard against that. There's really no boundary here in order to understand and how to process that. Well, this book of Nehemiah fits in our Bible in a spot of, of rebuilding time. This is a time after Israel had been redeemed supernaturally. God had brought them through and they had even possessed the land that God intended and promised for them to possess. They started to go into a backsliding time though as a unique people group that God had called out for his purpose, for his glory. And they were sliding into apostasy and simply meaning that they were going away from God. And they started to build idols in their hearts and idols even that they might bow down and worship. And so at the same time, they would enter into the temple of God and worship God and keep the feast and keep the sacrifices and keep the ordinances seemingly of God. They would also go to another temple and worship another God and false gods. And so it was this dual hearted, your heart is divided in many places. As a result, God had made a, a promise to Israel. He told them, that if you, if you serve other gods, 
that I'm going to turn you over to other nations to disperse you. They will conquer you and disperse you. He's being a good father to discipline a nation of people whom he's called by his own name. They are his son. In Exodus 4, he actually calls Israel my son. And so he, he disciplines his child by bringing in other nations to dominate over them or conquer them. Well, the, ultimately, the Babylonian Empire came in to Jerusalem and they crushed the city politically and then ultimately even military-wise where they broke down the walls and burned the gates of the city. Some years before Nehemiah's time, there was the book of Ezra, as we know. A man named Zerubbabel rose up with permission from Cyrus, the king of Persia. The Persian Empire had conquered the Babylonian Empire. And so the Persians, or Cyrus, the king of Persia, gave a written decree that said any of the Hebrew or the Jewish people that would like to go back to home and rebuild the temple um, in that city, you go right ahead. So they had freedom to go. Many went. 50,000 or so went back on that first journey. Some years went by, many years went by, after the temple was restored, that Ezra led another group of people back to establish temple worship and get some house in order. When he got there, it was very distressful, though, because people, even after all of the, all of the discipline that Israel had received, being taken away and dispersed, he had found much sin in the camp and many difficult things to have to deal with. However, there was an incredible... Uh, revival that took place because the people confessed and acknowledged their sinfulness before God and God did some great and mighty things under Ezra's leadership well now we're about 12 years later and some men come matter of fact one of them is Nehemiah's brother came back from Jerusalem and brought word to Nehemiah now Nehemiah is at this moment in Shushan the palace he is in the palace of Artaxerxes the king the king of Persia and as a result of being in this palace, he is raised up in position now to be the cupbearer to the king, which means he's the one who kind of tests all of the food and drink to make sure the king would never be poisoned. So he's in a very high trust position. Nehemiah's brother comes in and they begin, he begins to inquire about, well, how are things and how are, how are our brethren? How are our friends? And I'm sure they changed, exchanged conversation about people they all knew together. And how about the city? And his brother told him, he said, you know, the city is broken down. The walls do not exist. The gates are burned. It lays in ruin. And as a matter of fact, he used a word, he said, the city is a reproach, which means it's a shame. It's literally the people are oppressed and living in a place of shame and cannot even lift their head. I'm sure maybe others have attempted to do some level of building project. Nothing's ever come to pass. But now this city has laid in ruin all these years and no one seems to do anything about it. But now Nehemiah catches this word and he hears it from his brother. And now it, it broke his heart to find out that his city is still laying in waste. If you've got your Bible open to the book of Nehemiah, we're in chapter 1. If you're in Nehemiah, you're ahead of me. I haven't even turned there yet. All right, here we go. Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll start and just start looking at verse 4, and then we'll get on the screen in a second. And said, So it was, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and, and praying before the Lord God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please, let your, heart, your ear be attentive and your eyes open 
that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night. For the children of Israel, your servants, uh, and confess the sins of your children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. Let me go back. I want us to capture something this morning here that takes place as soon as Nehemiah catches word of what has happened. The first thing he does is he prays. He's brokenhearted. He's brokenhearted for his people, but he's brokenhearted because the city that is called by the name of God is in reproach. It's a shame. The glory that should be known, should be exhumed to the nations, is not. He's crushed for God's sake, for his people's sake, and it just leads him then to the spot to pray. In Hebrews 11.6 teaches us this, that without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So here's what happens with Nehemiah. He immediately goes to prayer in faith. And he is going to plead with God for several things here. He is going to exalt God's name. Putting the rightful position that God, you are God and there is none else. He's going to very openly confess the sin of his nation, his family, and himself. Even confessing a dependence upon God. In addition to that, he, he has a request to make because he's got a difficult thing in front of him. He has to go before the king with his brokenness. There's a conversation that needs to happen with King Artaxerxes. And he doesn't know how that's going to go for sure. Now, this is the first of several prayers in the book of Nehemiah. And we see some prayers where Nehemiah is like here in great distress. There's others where he is in need of just great power from God. We will see him undertake a huge building project, an impossible project. And he will pray before he begins. We will see him in need of God's goodness and just his mercy. And so we're going to see several prayers as we progress through the book of Nehemiah. But I think a fair question to ask here is when trouble comes, and it happens for all of us, what's our instinct? We usually worry and fret, get anxious, and that's, I get it. It is why the scripture teaches us to be anxious for nothing. But by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God. It's instinctive, fleshly in us to get anxious and worry and take command and control of a circumstance and try to fix it. Jesus knowing this, we learn some things out of the book of Hebrews as well. Let me share another verse with you that says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That verse comes after one that teaches us that Jesus is like our high priest. It says that we don't have a high priest that can't be touched with the feeling of our struggles, or our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, just like we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus totally gets it. He understands. And so whenever troubles come, he's invited us and even commanded us, come to the throne of grace. This is where you will find grace. This is where you will find mercy in the time of need. And this is what Nehemiah is going to do the exact same thing. You know, it is probably a common question that people ask that if God is all-knowing and all-powerful and he already sees the future, because we know in the book of Revelation, he's already sees what's coming. So why does prayer even matter? Who cares? 
Isn't God just going to do what God's going to do anyway? Well, let me affirm something to you that we just read in Hebrews 11. That when we come to God by faith, He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. God wants to move on behalf of the faith of people who believe Him, who will come to Him and ask Him, where He can then do something exceeding abundant above all that we could ever ask or even think, because it reveals the glory of Christ. And God then moves on behalf of the faith of His people to do things that maybe He wouldn't have done otherwise. It's supernatural things. If this was not so, then seemingly Jesus' words would be ridiculous for the fact that He was teaching the disciples in Luke 11 how to pray. What's the point of praying if, there's, if God's going to just do it all anyway? And He instructed them to pray this way, to exalt the name of our Father in heaven... And certainly you're welcome to ask, make requests, and align your will with God's will. But it's certainly right to ask. In fact, Jesus follows that entire dialogue about the Lord's Prayer when he says, Ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and you will find. And knock, and the door will be opened. If there's no point in knocking or seeking or asking, because God's just going to do it anyway, then Jesus' words are of no effect. But certainly the Lord wants us to pray. Nehemiah was a man who prayed. In verse 4, this is where we'll begin really in this text for today. It says, So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He mourned for many days. I don't know how many, but I can tell you this. From the time he got the news from his brother until the beginning of chapter 2 where he has this conversation with the king... Three months passed by. It, if you just read it real fast, it almost seems like this, he got this bad news, he prayed, and he walked in, and now we're having this conversation with the king. But no, three months has passed. He's prayed many days. He's fasted. I don't know how many days did he fast in that. doesn't even matter because fasting, what is fasting? It's maybe something that we don't do as often, but fasting is something where we abstain from food usually that's the ingredient here we abstain from food it's afflicting ourselves or it's humbling ourselves it's a discipline to our, of ourselves to pursue and to hear from God you know sometimes when really distressful information comes our way and we're brokenhearted or or in, in concerned for someone we don't even feel like eating often people are always telling you, you need to eat something you need to get some sleep and they're always counseling you know you got to eat you got to eat you got to eat you know, sometimes you don't feel like eating. Sometimes you just, it's time to fast. You just want to be alone. You want to be still with God. You want to hear from God that right now, food is the last thing I'm concerned about, the only thing I care about. I want to hear from God, and what does God say in this matter? That's all that matters to me. And that's where Nehemiah is at. Lord, I want to hear from you. And I humble myself before you, and I stay away from the things that are the blessings from you because I just want to hear from you and he mourned and fasted for many days never confuse fasting with this idea that if i if i afflict myself some way then god it's almost like god owes me something and i god's indebted because i've i've afflicted therefore god needs to pay me my request no it doesn't work that way fasting is simply me humbling myself before god i am disciplining myself i am afflicting myself for what purpose because i just want to hear from God in this he prayed many days 
Now, here's what God's doing with Nehemiah. He's building this man. He is building a man through prayer to make him the man to lead this group. Nehemiah now, he's building his trust and power in God's character. And he said, I, and I said in verse 5, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Notice his appeal and who it's to. It's very personal. He's appealing to the Lord God of heaven in the same way that Jesus said that when we pray, pray our Father. It is a personal relationship that God exchanges with us in prayer that you, are, you don't have to go through some other mediation uh, technique. There's no one else. You can go straight to God and talk with Him. And Jesus, of course, said He's our mediator. The Holy Spirit is also our mediator. But we have access to God, the person of God, when we pray. Talk directly to Him. Affirm his character of who he is. Some of you have probably seen this many times, that phrase, acts, A-C-T-S. To adore God, meaning to affirm his character, his attributes, to exalt his name, to adore. The A. The C, the confession of, of sin, the confession of dependence. It's an easy way sometimes to remember praying things so we don't get out of balance and just always ask, Lord, but to please take care of this and please take care of that. But it's a... An adoration, it's a confession, it's, it's thanks. And making sure we're always giving thanks because it's the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning us, according to 1 Thessalonians. And it's supplication, it is asking. We make requests. And he wants us to make requests on behalf of others and on, even on things that we're in need of. But here's the, here's the thing that Nehemiah is doing. God is building his trust, trusting his power, and trusting in the character of of who God actually is. And Nehemiah now is affirming God's words. And he said, you are a covenant God. You keep your mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. It is why Jesus said this in John 15. Jesus said, if you'll keep my commandments, you will abide in my love as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. It's why in our discipleship, we talk about it this way. It is our mission. To make disciples or to pursue to make disciples who love Jesus. Why? Because when I love Jesus, it, everything pours out of that. Because I am rejecting the idols of this world because my heart is for Jesus. I love Jesus' word. I love the person of who he is. So therefore, it, it compels me to have relationship and prayer and through the scriptures with him. I love the people of God because so does Jesus. And so loving Jesus is paramount. Then I, I grow because I just keep learning Jesus and learning his ways, learn his mind, learn his heart, learn his covenants, learn his promises. These things matter. And as I love Jesus and learn Jesus, then it just walks in the manner of life. I live Jesus. That's the whole goal in our discipleship strategy, meaning how, how does God want us as one community church to make disciples and see people come to know Christ, mature in faith, to be able to reproduce our faith with other people wherever God would put us on the planet? And Nehemiah prayed, you are a God who keeps commandments or keeps covenant and mercy with those who love you and keep your commandments. Nehemiah also prayed and God is building him in humility. Now watch what happens. He said, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open 
that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and, and I have sinned. Now, mind you, Nehemiah was not part, he wasn't probably born until he was in captivity in Babylon. He wasn't part of that whole fall of Jerusalem thing. Now, his father's house, yeah, it probably was. But I want you to notice what's happening here with Nehemiah. He's including himself in where the state of the nation is at, even those who are 1,500 miles away. Nehemiah is clear over here in east of, uh, of, he's in Iran at this point, east of Baghdad. He's about 1,500 miles out, or 1,500 kilometers, 1,000 miles away from Jerusalem. And yet he's including himself with his people in all of the mess. And why does that matter? Because it keeps us from being like Jesus described where we, we can certainly see the sin of others, but we just don't see it in ourselves. We kind of get that log in the eye, but we kind of miss the speck in someone else's. Or we see the speck, miss the log, I mean. Nehemiah even made this statement. He said, we have acted, verse 7, very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, or the ordinances which you've kept or you've commanded your servants. And here's where Nehemiah's at. This is so critical. He's just being honest with God. I think that's one of the most difficult things when we're in distress. About just laying it all wide open before the Lord. And even when we pray and confess sin sometimes, maybe we kind of use like the blanket insurance policy style. Lord, I know I'm a sinner and please forgive me my sin. Well, that's true, and that's a right thing probably to say. But you know what God also wants us to do? When we confess our sin, it means we are coming into agreement with God about sin. It means that I specifically can tell God, I know that I blew that right there. I said that right there. My attitude was wrong right there. I was, my behavior was, in, was not right in that spot. And it's very distinct because I'm coming into agreement that what I've just said or done or thought is out of alignment with scripture and now me and God are on the same page because I'm saying the same things about life that he is the why this matters is because Proverbs 28 teaches this it says he who covers his sins will not prosper but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy that's what Nehemiah is doing here coming very honest before God of this is where we are. In fact, we know this in the New Testament that we can follow this very well. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and He's just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What we want when we are out of bounds with God is to be brought back into fellowship and restoration. It's to get the walls back straight and the gates hung back up because everything's kind of gotten wrecked. And here's how it's, it's so amazing. That no matter how messy we have made things, whatever we've thought, said, or done, no matter how big and bad and ugly it is, when we are honest with God about that, and we agree together, it is sin. God, I, I've messed that up. The scripture teaches that he is faithful and just to forgive it. 
which means God does not bring it up again and again and again and keep shoving it in your face. That is the work of the enemy in your life that wants to shame you in your sin. Shame just keeps bringing it around and bringing it around because what shame does is causes you to identify yourself according to your failure. So whatever sin you've ever committed in your whole life, that's how you see yourself and identify yourself that way. Therefore, you, you can almost self-disqualify that, well, I, I, I'm just not probably the right guy for that and I, I should probably never consider that because after all. And we see ourselves through that lens when in fact the scripture teaches that God has forgiven us and cleansed us of all unrighteousness. So I stand before him clean, righteous and holy. Well, what if I sin again? Well, I confess it again and God forgives me, cleanses me, and, and I'm restored again. And this happens, well, it's like the disciples asking Jesus, well, how many times? And he's like 70 times. It's an, an untold number. It's an, an everyday thing in our lives to keep fellowship with Jesus in this. And this is where Nehemiah is at, is building through humility. He is building, God's building him through the place of humility and just being honest with God about where he's at. But he's also building Nehemiah through trust. That Nehemiah would embrace the words of God. Verse 8 says, now remember. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. Now, God did that. Remember, Lord, way back when you made the covenant promise, when, we, when you made this promise with Moses and we came out of Egypt and, and you told us you were taking us to this promised land, you told us. That if we are unfaithful to you, you'll scatter us. And you kept your end of the deal. You did. You scattered us just like you said you would. But, verse 9, but if you return to me, God said this, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather you from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a, name, a dwelling for my name. God had already chosen out the city of Jerusalem as the name for his dwelling. And God says, and I will bring you back. I will restore you and bring you back to that place. And he restored his glory there. The old temple was reconstructed. These walls will eventually be reconstructed. And this city will be a glory unto the Lord. And a miracle that God has done in the midst of complete ruin. Why does any of this matter? Because when I see a man who is in distress and receives bad news and is hurting on behalf of his people and he sees people's lives that are broken and without hope and it seems there's no leader to guide and no light to shine and the place is in reproach against the name of Christ and he can't help but, Lord, what would you have me to do? And I'm appealing to you, God, based on what you have said. And Nehemiah sees himself now as, Lord, with this information, I, I need to return. I need to go back to the place to rebuild. Because that's what you said you would do. You would, you would gather us back into the spot to restore what is broken. Matter of fact, these same words, it's so important to hear this, but Solomon, when that temple was initially built in the city... Solomon had a prayer that he prayed to dedicate this temple. And when the prayer was finished, God told him this. He said, I have heard your prayer, Solomon. I've heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for my, for my namesake. And God then told him, 
this verse that many of us know. He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, I'll heal their land. Now listen, what, what did Nehemiah just pray? Lord, that your ear would be attentive, that your eye would see. And here's what God had told Solomon before when the temple was constructed. He says, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. See, God has chosen a place and God wants that place rebuilt and God is willing to bring back and restore. And why does any of this matter? Because sometimes, guys, in life, whether it's ours or we know someone, that life gets broken down and in seemingly in rubble and it seems hopeless. I can tell you this, that our God builds up out of brokenness and restores that which was once something that brought glory to him. It became this reproach. It seemed like all this shame. And now God restores this supernaturally to the place of glory again. By his own grace, by his own mercy. At the same time, he was just. And he brought discipline at the right time, at the right hand. In verse 10, it says, Now these are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Lord, we are called by your name. If you notice what Nehemiah is doing, he's praying the word of God back to God. He's rehearsing back the words of Moses. He's rehearsing back the words of Solomon, the affirmations of God, your covenant. God, you said you heard the prayer of Solomon and now I'm praying exactly the same thing and God, this is what I'm asking you to do. And here's why it matters for for Nehemiah right now. He's so many miles away. He doesn't really know what it all looks like other than what he's told. He feels compelled to go back because the word of God is instructing him to do so. But God's moving in his life about this. He has a massive obstacle before him. As a cupbearer to the king, he needs to have a conversation with the king about it But the problem is Nehemiah can't even show his countenance being down or discouraged or even sad in the presence of the king. It is illegal to do so. Because the king always wants everything perfect and smiling and the countenance is always right. Nehemiah needs to make a request to him though about this. Nehemiah is going to need provisions. He's going to need protection. He's going to need everything possible. But the first thing, he's got to have a conversation with the king. And this is going to be hard. He has no idea how this is going to go. And that's why God is building him to learn to ask for the impossible things. In verse 11 it says, O Lord, I pray, please, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants, plural, who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, referring to the king, for I was the king's cupbearer. And here's what he's asking for. Lord, cause us to prosper. Prosper in participation that there would be many servants. Praying to the Lord of the harvest. Sounds just like Jesus. When you see the harvest field is widened to harvest with people, Jesus says, you know what? The labors are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth labors into the field. 
Nehemiah is praying the same. Lord, the prayers of the people who love you and call upon your name, Lord, and, and are confessing their sin before you and see the city in brokenness and want to raise up and build again, Lord, would you hear their prayer and now mobilize, Lord, in participation, that we prosper in participation. But he's also asking that they would prosper and he would prosper in preparation. And in this preparation, he said, that I may prosper as I pray that you grant mercy because God, I'm the cupbearer to the king and I've got to go talk to the king. And maybe this somewhat would resonate with any of us in this room where there's difficult conversations that maybe you're facing. Sometimes it's with family, people we work with or employers. You know what you're asking for here? You're asking for God to go before you. You're asking for in mission, in ministry, that God would go before you on behalf of this conversation, that God would give an attentive ear and open eyes to understand that God obviously sees it perfectly, but that the person that maybe you're going to communicate with would as well. That God would make the supernatural provisions that are needed. Right now, many of us in this room need provisions for something that God has instructed for. Or maybe God to step in the gap where we've been left exposed and someone else should have provided and they're not. And we're asking God to do things supernaturally there. Maybe it's the place of brokenness where it's just, man, it, there's just so many troubles. Our fa- we have wayward children and grandchildren at times. Maybe it's parents that are not walking with God and it hurts and we, it's confusing and we don't know what to do with it. We see the plight of our nation and our world and realize that it's people that don't know Jesus and it's lives that are laying in ruin like the city of Jerusalem was in ruin. And now we come to the great God of heaven and plead with God for His grace, for His mercy. And we open with God and confessing our sin before Him and recognizing, Lord, we, we are a needy people and without Your hand, we have nothing. These prayers in the book of Nehemiah are so powerful because we're going to watch through this book, God do a miracle. Because that's what God wants to do through a church. He let us see glimpses of this over and over again through people and through groups of people. But I can come to my New Testament and see exactly what God says in His truth when He says in Ephesians 3, affirming our prayer and affirming our faith to say this, now to Him, being God, who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or even think. According to the power that works in us. Well, what is that power working in us? It's the power of God working in us. The very person of God who dwells in us. And he's working in us and then working through us to do the things that are impossible with men. To him then gets the glory. To him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know what God wants to do? Glorify the Son by doing supernatural things through the church that are unexplainable with people. It's the, it's the watching a group of people who minister and trust God for provisions when they have none. It's a, a small group of people like this that God would mobilize us to minister in ways that maybe are, are difficult for us or seem so far away for us or it's beyond the scope of our capacities and, 
and yet God finds ways to supernaturally provide. And, but let's boil it down into the simple things in our own lives of things that God wants to do supernatural in and through your life. Why? Just because we believe Him. So maybe I can remind you today through this prayer of Nehemiah. As you go back and meditate right to, even today in prayer to exalt the name of God. Rehearse in your mind the provisions of God, the names of God, the character attributes of God, and just exalt Him for who He is. And then turn right around and be able to confess when you recognize He is God, we recognize then our, our sinfulness before Him. And it's not just acknowledging others, but no, it's, Lord, you've allowed me to see me through them. <laughs> but then it turns to this heart of thanks for God's co covenant promises, his truths, and his great love for which he loves us. That also turns to request of, Lord, we need help. I need your help. And I come asking you who are the great helper. You're the tower of refuge and strength. You're the solid rock by which I stand. I come to ask for you to do something exceeding abundant above all I can ever even ask or think here. Supernatural. Not that I'd get the credit, but Jesus would be glorified. And you know what I know from Scripture? God heard Nehemiah's prayer. God answered this prayer. And God does a supernatural work that we can see in Scripture. The things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. I can go to this story and know that my God answers prayer and wants to do things supernatural. Let's take a few moments even now to spend some time alone with God. I encourage you to just bow your head and be still. Our worship team will come and guide us in song again in just a moment but I obviously don't know what all's going on in all of your lives but I know some I know that every person in this room is in great need of God's great grace and mercy we're in need of God's provision and his protection we're asking God to rebuild things that are broken we're asking God to take away the reproach, the shame that maybe we've carried for all too long. May we come to God this morning asking Him for forgiveness of sin and confessing and just being honest with God about where we're at. Maybe the prayer of your heart this morning is, Lord, save me. I recognize I, I am a sinner. I need a Savior and I can't save myself. But I believe that Jesus is the Savior. And he died and paid my sin debt in full by dying on the cross. But he also rose from the grave alive and now gives the promise and hope of eternal life. I'm asking you to save me. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. maybe that's your prayer today. is it a prayer on behalf of someone else who do you know that needs Jesus today 
Dear Father, we come before you humbly as a people recognizing you are God. You're our Father in heaven. You love us dearly. We certainly know you love those who turned and given their hearts to you, but you also love the ones who haven't yet. Because even when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Dear Father, I pray this morning that you would restore that which is broken, that you would bring strength to where we're weak. Dear Father, that certainly you would forgive us where we have come short of your glory. And that you would even remind us today of those things that we might confess and walk away cleansed to not pick those things up ever again. Dear Father, I pray for the, for the ones in this room that maybe aren't Christ followers yet, that in this very moment, by faith, they would trust you and call upon the name of the Lord to be saved.